Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Troy, uh, we have another revived conversation to talk about today, don't we? Yes, we do, and I'm excited. Now, I will say, this seems like such a big subject, and it, when I when we, yeah. when we when I realized this is what we were going to talk about, it kind of surprised me that we hadn't covered no, this I had the subject same thought. Like, directly before. Yeah, you said, let's talk about money, and I said, but we've already done that. But no, we haven't. We actually have not talked about money in our Revive Conversation. Now, if you're new to Revive Thoughts, Revive Conversation is a uh, an episode where it's a bit more chill, it's a bit more laid back, where Troy and I discuss a topic uh, in the light of what we have learned from studying 2,000 years of church history, uh, how that might apply to us, what we could benefit from it in our society today, and the ways that the church and church leaders have interacted with money over the past 2,000 years is fascinating. It's a really, it's a really good way to say it, and I, I do want to just add too that revived conversations are not like a theology, you know, show. We're not going to go pull out each Bible verse that talks about money um, and give you our biblical prescription. What our goal is to do is say, hey, there are lots of shows that do that, and we think they're all wonderful. Our show is this is designed to look at church history and say, well, how has the church interacted with that subject in the past, and. So it's a little bit different maybe than how some other shows would approach this subject. Now, Troy, where do you want to start on this discussion? Because I know where I want to start, and that's near back at the beginning. Were you thinking of taking <laughs> this back to the beginning, or did you have did you have like a you know no, another set I, of examinations? I think that's actually the best place to start because if you want to turn your view of money upside down, I think starting with those guys in the first couple mm-hmm. centuries of the church is definitely a way that will kind of flip your your perspective as someone growing up in the 21st century upside down will be looking at how those guys did it in the mm-hmm. first couple. Do you have an example that you're thinking of, Joel? Yeah, I'm thinking of a, a, a Chrysostom, right? I mean, of a, a vow of poverty, living in a cave uh, all by yourself for years on end. Uh, I find it, and lots of, lots of the people that we cover that were from those second, third century church leaders, I do find it real interesting that like once people in, you know, the church settled into having to find an identity, you know, once, once Jesus hasn't come back, all the apostles dead, all the apostles apprentices are dead. The church has to be something. What is the identity of the church? Pretty instantly identifying with Jesus's call to give up everything you own and follow him was one of the, like, I I feel like one of the most identifying characteristics. A lot of people independently came to the conclusion that uh, being poor and separating yourself from material possessions is the way to go with with uh, how to live a Christian lifestyle. Would you say that's true, Troy? Yeah, I would. For those of you who don't maybe know, haven't listened to our episode on Chrysostom yet, Chrysostom was one of not the only one, but one of multiple monks who was usually from a pretty wealthy background, highly educated, and then he gave up everything he owned. And Chrysostom was so trying to separate himself from worldly trappings that he moved out to a cave where he literally was going to just live in a cave. And he was like, I'm going to be by myself. I want to be by myself with me and just God. 
And we may look at that and go, that is extreme, right? And that's not even, you know, I, I told this story to some students one time and they were like, but that doesn't seem like we're supposed to share the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Mm -hmm. However, I, I, I also admire their dedication. The irony is in his attempt to get away and live in a cave, so many people flocked to that cave and joined him and like joined, he built like basically a whole following there because they were like anybody holy enough to give up their lives and live in a cave must be a holy guy. He ended up, of course, um, well, maybe not of course, but as you might suspect, living in a cave, he did eventually get sick. He almost died. His followers took him out of the cave. And then everyone was so impressed that he was willing to basically die to be close to God that he ended up becoming one of the main bishops of one of the biggest cities in the world, which was about as far opposite of what his original goal right. was in my mind. And then people were surprised when this guy Chrysostom started preaching and he was preaching against the rich and preaching against uh, being trapped by the things of this world. And they were like, hey, wait a second, can't you preach things we like? And I just think that's so funny because I'm like, you pulled this guy out of a cave. Like, what did you expect him to say when you got him in front of the pulpit? He's not the only one. Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus and so many others are the same way where they looked at the trappings of this world as distractions, as things that could harm you and as things that were meant to keep you from following God. And I think it's easy for me and others to react and go, look, they just weren't appreciating the blessings that they have. They weren't understanding that everything is a gift from God, you know, if used properly and those kinds of things. But stop, if you just stop and reflect for a moment and be honest with yourself, are the things that make you comfortable sometimes a distraction from God? If we're honest, I think it's true that sometimes we do this, right? Maybe it's just me. But I definitely know that my phone and even my comfortable bed and all the food that I enjoy on a regular basis, all these things can keep me so focused on enjoying my day to day that I don't spend time truly with God. I certainly don't fast all day in a cave like some of these guys used to do. And and I, obviously, I feel like I feel like just the the society, the worldview back then was a little bit different. Even when amongst secular communities, there was still an essence of a spiritual realm and a material realm and the material realm was seemed to be inferior to the spiritual realm. Like it was one of those things to where materialism is not as good. Christianity aside, that was something that was a part of their society back then, which isn't a part of our society now in the slightest. I think it was oh. interesting. You talked about your students saying that like, you shouldn't be isolated because you need to be around people. And I feel like, I mean, and, that, and that's certainly a movement we also see in church history is, you know, coming from a different approach, not so much one as a monastic monk that isolates himself on some mountainside, you know, that we, we have that stereotypical image in our head to one of that friar that kind of lives in a monastery on the outskirts of town, but is near town. And again, that, that movement happened specifically because of that, reason that people realize that they need to be people or they need to be around people. They need to interact with people. Uh, that's part of what uh, Christ calls us to, to, to be in a Christian community, to fellowship with other believers, uh, to spread the good news to all the nations. And so it has to interact with people. But I also feel like that's where you end up having to formulate some materialism into your life, right? Like there has to be some conveniences when it comes to travel or transportation or, or uh, you know, housing larger groups of people, things like this, that the, the creature comforts get introduced at that point. And those cost money. And of course, they were able to fund those endeavors 
in monasteries in that way. I don't know. What is your thoughts on does does being a Christian directly involved with groups of people require a less monastic thought process and more of an emphasis on material goods or or do you think that's hodgepodge? So I think the answer to that might be what what kind of the solution that I think some of those later monks and kind of monastic livers figured out livers anyway <laughs> the people who were living that monastic lifestyle figured out which is I am not supposed to live in a cave maybe although again I really do appreciate their commitment and they of course yes obviously today we're not prescribing go live in a cave but I, I appreciate what they were trying to do I think though that they missed the part where I should just be giving it to the poor. And like what those later guys did as they kind of lived on that hillside was I'm going to be giving away to the poor. But if you are giving away to the poor, you do also need to be able to, you know, have it to give it in a sense. And that doesn't mean you should be working and living just how can I make money? But how am I keeping my lifestyle in a way that I am constantly giving to those who are in need around me? And that doesn't always mean just I'm dropping a check off at a charity somewhere, although that might be good too, but also just literally the people taking care of the people around you. That monk in the in the village, he knew if he was doing a good job, he knew who needed extra blankets mm-hmm. when the cold season came. You know, when Christmas came, what kids are gonna be the least likely to have any any toys or money, and how can I get them to that? You know, we talked about that in our Saint Nicholas episode. Uh, that's the kind of lifestyle I think that is a little bit better served. It's not that you're just giving up all your money and living this world completely isolated from everyone else, so that you can commune with God. Again, it was very popular at that time. But more just like, how can I be giving, my hands are open to give what I have to the poor. And that way, I, I think, I don't know, does that make sense to like, I think that's the better solution that later monk kind of people figured out, like we were going too far in the one end of it. But they were also really good at calling out the rich. And that's something I think that we need to like emphasize on, because you go listen, the sermon that we had the most feedback from in our earliest days was not a Jonathan Edwards sermon. It was not a Charles Spurgeon sermon. It was not, uh, well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Overcoming Fear might have been it. But the the, the second one was a sermon from Basil called To the Rich. And I didn't expect this to have any feedback, but this guy, you know, Basil had given up what he owned to the poor. He was taking care of people. And he gave a sermon calling out the rich people in his congregation, basically saying, you guys do not give to the poor live for right now. You hope that your inheritances will save you, but death is a better giver than you because at least death makes you give up your money. And it just brutalizes his people on how they spend their money. And yet we had a lot of people, including myself, when I read the sermon for the first time going, ouch, that's me. I see myself Mm. in the reflection of those rich people that Basil was talking to. Over and over again, those monks lived a life where they clearly rejected material things, and that gave them the authority to call out the people around them. Nobody could say to those guys, hey, you're just saying that because you have a nice fancy private jet, like we might say to some of the people alive today. You couldn't say that to those guys because they would literally walk in with robes, hardly any clothes, they're half-starved from fasting, and then they would turn around and tell you, you're living for today's gain. And there was no argument. You You had to look at them and go, yeah, you're right, I am. And I do think that that is something we can learn from them, that we should be living lifestyles that where if we call out the rich or we as Christians say, hey, our congregations need to be congregations of giving and sacrifice that genuinely helps our communities in the way that Christ has called us to. We need to be as 
a foolproof, as, as trustworthy as those ministers were. I can't help but think of the moment, and this is actually in Scripture, when they're kind of reviewing Paul and his ministry, right? They bring him to Jerusalem, they're kind of talking to him, trying to figure out this whole thing with the Gentiles, and they're kind of like, look, we're going to write a couple rules, you know, don't sacrifice meat to idols and stuff like that. And also, uh, not sacrifice meat, but don't, you know, don't, don't eat uh, this idol stuff, don't eat blood. And then, and then they were like, and also keep giving money to the poor. And, and Paul was like, and that's, that's what I do, right? That's what I wanted to do. I want to give mm-hmm. money to the poor anyway. So I, I feel like the reason why we think of the early church is so attached to that is because that's really was the heartbeat of what Paul was doing. It really was what we see Jesus Christ doing. Uh, that's our model for being Christians as we give to the poor. And I think those early church fathers, for their many maybe mistakes, they really had that connection. And it wasn't just them. I think that if you look throughout church history and you see movements of God happening, you often see people who are close to the poor. Mm. And you see people who are really interacting with and caring uh, for the poor. Or not just the early monks, but the later monks too. And then when I think of another, a more contemporary yeah. guy in comparison, Martin Luther, he saw what the peasants were going through different plagues and he would bring them into his house to try to take care of them and try to help them. Yes, there was the Peasants' Revolt, which he didn't like, um, but he was constantly trying to make sure that the children were educated, the peasants had food. There was just a heart behind it that was next, you know, adjacent to the Reformation. And I think also it's just, it's really hard to separate a movement of God's people. A movement of the church is also going to care about the poor. Mm -hmm. I think of like uh, your Hudson Taylor or your George Mueller, people that yeah. uh, literally had no idea where they were going to be able to pay next month's rent or or buy food for their kids or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, there's a very clear disconnect in their minds. When you look at their lifestyle and you read stories of their life, uh, there's a very clear disconnect between them and their reliance on money and material possessions uh is that directly proportional to the success of their ministry and this is the success of their outreach maybe i mean i think you can make a pretty good correlation there how many people do we have on revive thoughts that are like busting at the seams rich troy you'd probably know i mean other than other than people that were (laughs) literal kings and queens and such yeah i mean there are a few like and that's the one thing is too there are people who did not too bad for themselves. I've been to the, you know, Spurgeon Library. I'm not saying he was rich, but he had a lot of books, right? Like he did have a lot of books um, and books aren't the cheapest things yeah. to buy. They were a little cheaper back then, maybe. At the same time, I think that the, the it tends to be the ministers who make it into history that we're covering on our show tended to be poor and tended to be people who, like you said, a lot of times they didn't know where their mixed meal was coming from, but they trusted God and knew where it was coming from. I agree with you that it's not that none of them were rich or none of them you know, were well-to-do or, or were in high society. We did have a few. It's just not the normal ones, though. Mm-hmm. But Troy, Troy, we live in America. To, well, I guess you're living in Indonesia. Do we? Moment, <laughs> <laughs> wow. We live in America where, where we have... <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a higher, an easier way of living. You know, it's it's expected that you have money saved. You know, it's responsible. You know, you don't want to be irresponsible, fiscally irresponsible. What would you say to uh, you know what What's the application here? What's the life process of of where we're at in our society and our mm-hmm. culture? Um, what should our interaction 
with money be based on what we see throughout church history and the teachings in the Bible? Great question. I think that the answer is, it hasn't really changed, actually. You know what? It was also responsible to save money and take care of your money 2,000 years ago when Christ was saying, hey, you see that guy over there? He's going to, well, he didn't point to a guy, but there's going to be a guy who's <laughs> going to build this silo, fill it with food, but he's not going to eat it because he's going to die that night, right? That it was always considered wise to save money and have money on the side. The, the people who really seem to be calling after God are the people who most trust that. Now, if you're working, and many of you are listening to this while you're at work, we know that because you keep telling us, like, you help us get through the workday, which is just, I mean, what a blessing to hear that, right? Like, I, I, don't, I just, I used to be that guy working the job, and I, it was hard, and the podcast helped get me through it. So I can really say I appreciate that. I, I still listen to podcasts at work, so I still, I still am that guy sometimes. But I will say we can't let our savings plans and our retirement plans and our, our dividends and yields and our, our whatever bonds and things we have, our cryptocurrencies, whatever our future plans for our money, get in the way of the fact that we are still called to give to the poor and we are still called to help those around us and we are still called to take care of our brothers and sisters mm -hmm. in Christ. And not only that, but we are called to go know those people. Um, I, uh, Andrew Murray, not Andrew Murray, although he was also good at this, but I mean, uh, Andrew Benar and uh, Robert McChain and some of those guys were young ministers. And they, when they were in like college, basically learning to be ministers, their professor would take them to the poorest part of town and be like, get to know these people, talk to them, share the gospel with them, share soup with them, eat with them, know them. And they would do that. And they would do that for like years while at their Bible, you know, their version of college, Bible college, seminary, whatever. And he was like, this will help you learn how to minister to these people. So many of the people that we have in ministry and in seminary don't even know how to talk to the poor, right? Or they don't even know how to talk to people outside their, you know, their system, what they're used to. And yet we're supposed to be a church that reaches out and gives hope to the poor. We see in James where, you know, James is saying like, why are you always trying to reach out to the rich? They're the ones taking you to court. The poor are the ones that we honor here, Right. And it's, it's, it's not that we, we hate the rich. This is not like, you know, we're not, this, this podcast isn't going to end with, work, you know, Christians of the world unite workers, nothing like that. But it's just making that point. Like we need, the world is going to tell you to pursue fame and riches. We of Christ pursue humbleness and mm -hmm. the poor. We go after them and find them and love on them where they're at. Another example is Hudson Taylor. He knew he was going to China. He knew that he was too soft. So he purposely moved himself to the poorest part of town, a dangerous part of town. And, and then did something even like, I would, if you knew this guy, you'd be like, Hudson, you're stupid. But he, he refused. He made a bet with God, basically like, God, I will never ask for my paycheck. I will always trust you to give it to me. The guy he worked for would sometimes forget to pay him. And so he would go extra days between paychecks with no money, no food, just a little bit of like oatmeal, basically, even this really rough part of town where it wasn't safe. And he would just sit there and be like, God, you know, put it on his heart. I need this money. It was very difficult. And yet he eventually moved to China and would have to live in the middle of nowhere. And that patience that he learned at that, you know, dockside town was what encouraged him and helped him when he moved to those poor parts of China. And you may be listening and going, okay, but I'm not moving to the poor parts of China. Sure. But we as the church, the mission hasn't changed. We should still treat money mm -hmm. that same way of just going, I trust God with it. No matter what my retirement and savings is, I feel you know, very strongly that we need to be giving at a level where it, it affects us. C.S. Lewis said, I don't know the exact number of how much we give, but it should hurt. 
Cool. I think that's a really accurate way cool. to say it. People should be able to tell that with our giving, we trust in Christ because it wouldn't yeah. make sense for us to live the way we do if we didn't. Yeah, I like that example of of Hudson Taylor kind of almost kind of learning life lessons, learning how to exercise his faith in preparation for what God would knew God knew would be his future, you know? Uh learn to rely on the Lord ahead of time in this way. Uh, so that in the future, when God puts him there in in these parts of China, uh, he already uh, that's already part of his worldview. That's already part of his his understanding of how God works. And I feel like that's something that we don't get as much. There's there's aspects to our worldview and to our uh, the way we exercise our faith that many of us don't ever see. And I'm talking to myself, you know, included in that as well. I've never needed anything. You know, I've never wanted for anything. I've always had money to buy whatever I needed. Uh, and I enjoy my material possessions. The Lord's working on, I mean, even just talking about this conversation. I mean, the Lord, it's always <laughs> been a, an aspect of my life of uh, a connection to material things. Uh, it's something that we, as a society, definitely use to find satisfaction and fulfillment in uh, and it takes the place of God in that and I think that's evident when you look at what was so prevalent in the first you know five six hundred years of the church that was one of the main identifying features of many devout independent believers back then and yet it's largely absent from modern Christianity as far as I mean when you think of all your big names None of them prioritize that way of thinking like they did back then. And is that a bad thing? Is that Are we worse for it, I guess, is, is the thought experiment. I think we definitely have something to learn for it. I think when we, when we look at history and we see just how many times the great, wonderful Christians of history give up everything to live on that level for God and say, I'm going to be faithful even if I, even if you don't go tomorrow and say I'm a lawyer, but I'm giving up the law firm and I'm gonna, you know, go be a well a well digger in, in somewhere. Okay, yeah, maybe that's not going to be what everybody does, but it certainly I think challenges each of us to recognize and realize my finances are ultimately God's finances. He is sovereign over what I need, and I need to stop living like if I don't invest in this, you know, retirement account mm -hmm. here, and I don't keep my savings plush over here. And I don't, you know, give my child every single possible tool they need to succeed because I didn't spend all that money and maybe go into a little credit card debt to get it. But it's good because it helps my child, you know, or whatever these things are that drive us and recognizing that, like, we, we, we put our trust in God. I just thought of it. We were, as we were talking right now, I just kind of thought of an interesting story. I did not go into this with this, any kind of plan to tell the story. But I think it's really relevant, too. There's another cool story here. It's not about Charles Spurgeon, but it's about his wife, Susanna. And Susanna had this dream. We talked about this on our, our most recent yeah. episode by Spurgeon. I think it was, it was a while ago where she had this dream, basically, that she wanted to get this book that Spurgeon wrote into the hands of young ministers. She really thought it was really good. And she was like, I think every young minister should have this book. And he was kind of like, well, if you think that, you should go make it happen, right? Now, she could have gone to Charles and said, can I borrow some money and buy some books and get it out there? Or she could have gone to the church that, you know, and said, hey, guys, you know, doing this for Sp Charles or whatever. But she didn't. she didn't. She used her own money to buy some of those books and start giving them out. And then when people saw what she was doing, she said, hey, I'm starting my own charity, my own fund. Yes, it's for my husband's book, 
but I'm giving these books out. You know what I'm saying? Like we're not doing this to make mm-hmm. money. This isn't some scheme here. The whole point of this is I'm going to take my money. She was a, you know, a, a wife and homemaker, but she ended up setting up a book fund that I think by the end of her life, I, I don't want to say it was a million books, but it was something like a hundred or 200,000 books got in the hands of minister and ministers specifically who needed good theological training. That is the kind of faithful outreach where you're looking at money and saying, I know that God is going to do something with this. It's going to be outside myself. She didn't get any benefit from that. It wasn't like they they lined their pocketbooks with that. No, Charles and Susanna didn't benefit from that, but they, they didn't look at money as an obstacle to doing something great for God. They looked at it as an opportunity to give my money and see where God would really take that. And I think that there's a lot of us who who have plans, maybe you have a ministry, maybe you want to start, you're, you're planning to start a church or you're wanting to go out on missions or you, you have these ideas and then you look at the money and you go, ah, I just don't, you know, I would love to, but the money's not there. And that's kind of where the conversation stops, where we often go, well, you know, the fiscal man, if he doesn't have the money, then he needs to stop. It's not in the will. And I, I think that Susanna is that challenge where it's like, well, why don't you start with what you have and see what happens next? Maybe you're right. Maybe you don't make it all the way. But sometimes you do, and sometimes you end up doing some amazing things for God because you surrendered, you know, that mm-hmm. aspect of it. And you didn't let finances and money hold you back from doing what Christ had called you to do. Yeah, I feel like the surrender, that that is the root of the conversation, right? Because I feel like what it really comes down to is our desire to have control. We are people that... Uh, have been programmed to want to be able to control everything, to want to be able to have things within our power to adjust or adapt or change or modify if we need to. Uh, And that takes money to be able to do that. And so to give up your control uh, in many ways um, is, is to give up the money it would take to do that type of, of control in our own lives. Uh, And that is, in contrast to a life of surrenderment, right? If we're surrendered over to the Lord, uh, that way of thinking should not be what rules us, what guides us, what what is our you know deciding factor should not be one of our own uh, self powered control over our own lives, but rather of whatever the Lord wants. And and not to say, I mean, the all these decisions I think should be consulted in prayer, you know, with the Lord. And I think the Lord very realistically might say, hey, hold on to the money. You're going to need it for an emergency down the road or something like that. You know, I think I'll make it clear to you, but you won't know that unless you're in step with the spirit, unless you're surrendered to the spirit. And if the spirit's causing you, calling you uh, to be selfless and, and give towards a specific thing, I think you should follow those calls. Amen. I, I think one final thought I would say about money, and this kind of goes back to our original thought, these guys who were giving up all they had and showing their, truly showing their faith by their works. <clears throat> I see a lot of people, a lot of Christians who, they, in my, it is kind of, and what I see is a lot of people are scared to take any kind of a step down. Right. You know, you're, if you're, whether you're climbing the corporate ladder or you're, 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 you're taking, you're, you're the pastor of a big church or whatever. A lot of times we'll see somebody who's like, I'm kind of wrestling with this call to be the pastor of a rural church next. And, or I'm kind of wrestling with this call to actually relocate my family over here and step back from the family business or 
or whatever these things are. And there's this kind of this drive in all of us to go, no, don't step back. Don't, don't slow down. Don't keep going forward. Like we need to, you need that monetary success for that happy retirement and for all those things. And when we see people suddenly go, you know, I know it's crazy, but God is calling me to a life overseas. Or I know it's weird, but I think God is actually calling me to leave this church to go help out this struggling other church and stuff like that. And there's just kind of this, ooh, oh, 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 you're going to do what? Oh, don't you know? Like that's a step down. And Yet when you look at church history, how many episodes and how many times, Joel, have we looked at a guy and been like, he had it all and he stepped back Mm. from it and he went and did this for Christ. And then 30 years later, that thing he would have been famous for being a lawyer, being a doctor, being a scientist, whatever, wasn't like nowhere near as important to his work in ministry. And I just think that, yeah, you know what? Somebody might be taking, quote unquote, in this world's eyes, a step down. And yet that's exactly the direction that they're getting called to. They might not be famous for it someday, but it's certainly, in my opinion, no sign that somebody is, um, we shouldn't see it as even, quote, a step down. I think we need to start recognizing that God's ministers are called to live like money is just not important to them. And sometimes they're going to do what in the world's eyes is going to be a step down. But we in the kingdom should look at it and go, man, I can tell you're on fire for Christ because only someone who's close to God would know to make that move. All right. I think that is going to do it for today's episode of Revived Conversations. Uh, let us know your thoughts, revivedthoughts at gmail.com. You can uh, email in with, with anything you're thinking about. If you also have an idea for uh, a new episode of Revived Conversation, a suggestion for a conversation topic, uh, write in let us know that as well. We loved chatting about this stuff, brainstorming about it, uh, and seeing how people from church history can affect the way that we think about life now. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.